before I've kind of been told like, you know, we as women, we should be like Ruth and we should kind of draw near to our Boaz. But when you look at this story, we have a very Christ typology happening. Uh, Naomi is kind of urging her to leave and she's clinging on to her. You know, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Chris Wachter and Laura Rhinus, as every other week we walk through a few passages in light of the gospel before looking at a, but what about, part of the Bible that seems to fly in the face of grace, but maybe doesn't. We're glad to have you with us. It's the most wonderful time of year. And yes, that's, I'm speaking of the Red Tree Pod, uh, because that's <laughs> what we're doing today. And it's also the Christmas season. Uh, so a holiday <laughs> special episode here mm. uh, that's not actually going to talk too much about the holidays. Well, I actually, I won't, I won't get ahead of myself. Maybe you guys have some updates about the holidays. How, how are things? What has been happening with the twos of yous? Well, the Wachter family just saw the Christmas Carol at the hey. Guthrie in downtown Minneapolis. I don't know if you guys have been to the Guthrie before, but it's been a long time for me. It was really fun to see again. Really cool space and um, got some free tickets through my kids, uh, one of my kids' schools. They they try to get students, I think, out to see art, basically. So uh, so it was uh, it was a good thing. But um, yeah, I had a great time. Uh, we I think even like a year ago, Davis, you and I were talking a bit about Oh, what was that Netflix show that came out that was a remake of um, of The Christmas Carol? I forget the yes. name of it. Um, Will Ferrell oh, and Spirited, Spirited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just a fun story to reflect on spiritually, you know. And so my kids kind of fun time doing that too. They actually thought uh, if you guys have seen this, seen the play um, or read the book, I guess uh, the the nephew Scrooge's nephew is just so kind and just really wants to be with him, you know, even though he's just the biggest jerk, you know, of all. And uh, they kind of latched on to that. I, I kind of had more in inclination in this story always to see how it's just not gospel. You know, it's just this, uh, if you just go back and pay for Tiny Tim's turkey, then you're going to be fine and not go to hell, you know, like, mm -hmm. and just how contrived that feels like and how happy he just seems to be and sure of his eternal destiny he seems to be after he wakes up from this horrible nightmare. It always just seems so like off to me, but it's just kind of cool for my, I, for me, just that my kids kind of latched on more to the positive gospel side um, and seeing uh, just, yeah, uh, unmerited favor and grace in, in the nephew or the, uh, yeah, his nephew, which I forget if he has a name or not, but um, he calls him nephew all the time. So I forget if he has a name, but uh, so, yeah, so that was our uh, not too distant past year, a week or two ago, but um, so we, we enjoyed that, but, how about you guys? Holiday stuff or anything else going on these days? Yeah, I'm not doing like much fun things right now. <laughs> Unfortunately, I work in retail, so tis the season to be busy. Um, we're just really busy <laughs> at work and busy at home as we are into winter sports now. Um, so just a new schedule and trying to get kids into driver's training. It just just seems like everything is happening all at once. So I've just I've been just struggling kind of finding that balance of of 
go and do the things, um, but also just kind of like be and rest. Um, and now I'm an expert, so I'll field all your oh. questions, I guess. Just like <laughs> also, that. Okay. I'm not, I'm terrible. I'm <laughs> really bad. <laughs> not an expert. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's just, it's just been a busy season for myself and my husband, he works for the post mm. office. So it's, yep. That's, that's Jeez. it. We're just busy. You, you guys keep the holidays <laughs> running. You actually are yeah. the, the, the Santa's workshop activity. And it's like there. not a, it's, I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's maybe something <laughs> wow. that needs to be worked on. <laughs> we had a couple in our, still have a couple in our church who, um, he's retired now, I think, but he worked for the post office and his wife worked for UPS. Just kind of a funny <laughs> dynamic, but how they would always talk about each other's, you know, companies and, and stuff, but, um, cause they're kind of competitors, but, uh, man, during the holidays, holy cow. Yeah, yeah. It was, and they were on a committee group for a while and just, yeah, it was very notable uptick. That's for sure. In business and packages, it was, it just sucked them dry, but that is a divided fair. household right there. Yeah. That wouldn't is. happen in the <laughs> private sector. Yeah. No, I see. Right. Right. Jeez. Right. Yeah. yeah. We have Vikings but, fans and Packer fans in our house and I don't think it would be as bad as, yeah, private versus yeah. public like that. Wow. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm Davis. doing doing amazing, guys. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, no, I, since the last time I saw you, we, <laughs> we got together with my family. It was my brother's 40th. And so we mm. uh, spent some time at a cabin uh, in the north mm. lands of Minnesota. Uh, the north lands. I don't think we call that them that here, but <laughs> felt right. Mm-hmm. Um, the north. We actually, the north. The north. We were up north <laughs> and we did a, a very north thing to do. And, and that is we did a polar plunge. So my dad and I kicked it off and it kind of turned into a little bit of a competitive thing amongst my brothers. I got three older brothers and two of them wanted to do it. And then it kept kind of growing of like, well, if we do it, then everyone's got to do it, which included my dad and I again, especially after he had just taken a nice warm shower after. And so we did two (laughs) polar plunges back to back, which was a a great time. But I think my favorite part uh, of it was twofold. One, the lake froze completely over that night. Like, right. I just never seen that before. Like we got in and then that day it completely froze over. Uh, but then the second thing was my nephews, uh, two boys wanted to join us in, in this jump. And the moment it was like 150 feet to, to get to the lake from this place we were staying. And the moment we go out there, you know, in our shorts, they just start crying and they're just like, (laughs) we can't, we're not doing it. And, uh, they go back inside, but all of us had done the plunge at this point and they wanted to be a part of it. And so they were sad once they got back inside. And so then my brother back and forth, took them back outside. They didn't like it. They came back inside, wanted to be a part of it four times until finally he walked them down to the lake and they dipped their toes in and, and that counts. <laughs> and I, I think there's, there's some spiritual analogies probably in there about the yeah. father son dynamic yeah. and us dipping our toes into the, into the cold water. So, mm-hmm. uh, it was, it was a good time and I'm happy to not be in cold water right now. So, but Mm. speaking of cold water, let's jump into the Bible. Mm. I don't get paid for my transitions. I'm just in charge of doing them. Maybe you you should, should, though. Maybe you should. It's noticeable. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Today, we're going to look at Ruth 1 in the Old Testament before looking at Psalm 40. And then we'll continue our journey through Ephesians 1, just three short verses, 7 through 10. And then our But What About is a little bit of a longer passage, and that's in Luke 17, the first 10 verses there. 
so for let's start with Ruth One. This, this is a really fun book. It's a very short book, so very easy to read. Um, it's actually during the time of Judges. The first verse in chapter one says it's during during what we actually looked at in previous. I don't know if it was last episode we looked at Judges, uh, but during this time, uh, the book of Ruth is written, and she actually is the great grandmother of David. So spoiler alert, I always mm. knew she was in the line of David, but I didn't realize it was great grandmother until actually mm. today. So that was a little fun thing to read. Uh, there's this temporary peace that's yes. existing between Israel and uh, Moab, which is a, a, a location in the story. And this story is interesting because I, I feel like in Judges, you're getting such a 30,000 foot level of all these things that are happening to Israel. And here in this short little book, it just zooms in on one mm. family and mm. what does it look like for this family to follow God in real life, in real time, in the midst of really sad and uphill and and just yeah hard realities of life in a fallen, broken world. And so mm. the story begins actually not with Ruth. Naomi is the seemingly main character's name, especially of the first chapter. And her husband dies, and she's left just with her two sons, who then take up wives. And this is where we meet Ruth. Ruth is one of the two wives of Naomi's sons, and the other is Orpah, which, yes, is the dyslexic spelling of Oprah. Oprah. Uh, Yeah, I believe that's where she originally got her name. Uh, Probably not. Uh, But they have (laughs) 10 years of living together in that land, but then more tragedy befalls them. And in verse 5, we're told that the sons actually die. So this woman is left with her two, without her two children and her husband. In fact, that is verse 5. The woman was bereft of her two children and her husband, mm-hmm. uh, which right there is, I don't think it's an accident that we're just, she's just given this label, the woman. Um, and for first time readers of the Old Testament, this this has language that just brings us right back into Genesis 3, when we were promised after sin enters the world, that there would be a, a woman who is going to have a child that will crush the enemies of darkness, sadness, grief, sin, even death itself. But here in the story, we're seeing death is still in the lead. It's harming, it's crushing, it's tearing families apart. And so this is this is Naomi's lot. She has experienced uh, the effects of, of a fallen world with the loss of her husband and her two boys. And this sets up the rest of the story of Ruth, where she says uh, to her two daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-law, uh, go mm-hmm. on without me, find a husband. You still got time, basically. And one of them says, great, good point. Uh, thanks for, this has been nice knowing you have a nice life. That That's Orpah. And then Ruth does not. It says, but Ruth clung to her. And mm-hmm. Naomi's confused by this. And Ruth just has this amazing line. I'll pick up in verse 16 to 18. It says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Then they head back into Bethlehem, and there's some chatter around them of like, whoa, when Naomi left, she had a lot going on, and now she's quite empty. Uh, And that's where our chapter ends. Mm -hmm. So what do you guys got here for Ruth 1? Well, I should maybe start by saying I think they're, you know— with mention of Bethlehem, actually, that's your Advent vibe, Davis. Their Christmas vibe is with Bethlehem Hey-o. being mentioned in verse two. So, uh, verse one. But I remember reading a commentator once, actually, who said, I think in paraphrase of verse one, um, in the midst of a terrible time, something terrible happens. 
you know, it's just a really, you know, and I like how you set it up, Davis, because I think moving from the big kind of wide net of judges to this small, you know, singular family, um, it's, uh, it's just, it kind of harkens us forward a bit, you know, to, it, it gives us a signal and a sign that one day the fate of all will rest with one single person, you know, and it's this family, right? This is the the family lineage of Jesus. Um, and he'll be born in Bethlehem too, this podunk town of, of Bethlehem, like his, his father, David was. Um, and so I think there's some cool threads there, but, um, one thing I'll just start with, and then I'll, um, that I'll maybe just say typologically, um, kind of in a, a big picture sense, and I'll leave some meat on the bone for you guys to, to, um, add a bunch, but like, this is a great passage to look at in terms of seeing Jesus in multiple layers of a story. And I think sometimes when we're just kind of getting our feet wet a little bit with seeing Jesus in the old Testament, we, we tend to look for him in one segment of a story. You know, he's one character, he's the main character, or he's just one singular part. And then we try to fit in the other parts around him, kind of like planets around a sun. Um, sometimes that's the case. It doesn't mean that that's, that's never the case, but I think often that's not the case. Often he is in all the characters somehow. He's in the highs and the lows, the bigs and the smalls, the victories and the failures. He's in the sufferings and the triumphs. And the, those two things together are really important to see because they shape how triumph is coming through someone's suffering. And so um, the one thing I'll just start with adding then, I think what I love about this book, uh, even, I mean, before the plane even gets off the runway, you see death happen. You see Naomi lose her husband and her two sons. It's tragic. It's an awful, awful time uh, for her uh, and for Ruth and for Orpah as well, but for Naomi especially. And I think that against the, the backdrop then of so much good coming out of this book and um, can't summarize the whole thing, but you kind of did a little bit Davis, but it ends in a really high note of um, Naomi and Ruth, you know, Ruth getting remarried and Naomi having a kinsman redeemer and, and all this, but like the backdrop of this is death. And so you have like this note of suffering. I always like to look for notes of suffering, like who's suffering, who's dying. And, and, and how is that leading ahead to, in this case, a land re-entrance and to a famine being undone and to marriage and kinsmen redeemers and um, barrenness being overcome and just all these different kinds of things like that Phil Ruth and similar types of um, genre like stories like this, like in first Samuel as well and judges like that's really important to see because Christ is in that Christ is in the dead sons. He's in the dead husband. Like one day he would come and he would die so his bride could live and his bride could come back into a land of plenty and come back to where God is. And um, so again, I, I just love how even before the planes off the runway, you're already seeing God has a plan here and it's in the twists, it's in the surprises. It's not just that he'll save, he'll save by way of his own death and his own suffering. And to tie that with familial language and with marriage language and things, it just, and with Bethlehem, David's lineage, it just, amplifies all of it to see that Jesus is somehow going to come from this line of God working this way in history, but he's going to incur the suffering um, to reach sufferers uh, like us and to console us. 
So it, it makes me think of, uh, I think it's Romans seven is where you get a lot of this language surrounding the death of a husband is what yeah. allows us as mm. believers to bear fruit for God, because we now belong to another, namely him right. who died and rose again. Love it. And so in seeing something uh, like this in Ruth, I, th I think the point isn't just to say, oh, this is a good thing that's happening. No, it's the, it's the worst thing. That's the whole mm. point is she's in the midst of tragedy and is now experiencing disaster. And yet this is the thing that God is using as a blueprint to go, oh, this is, this is how I'm actually going to fix the world. This is how mm -hmm. I am going to be the child born of the woman. Uh, to undo the effects of sin's curses, uh, namely death itself. So mm. it's just a, just a little side note there on the, I love, love that it. imagery yeah. of the husband being put low. Yeah, I love what you're saying, Chris, about just Jesus being in more than one track. Mm. Um, I think, especially with Ruth, I mean, even when I first kind of started studying through the Bible, um, when I got to Ruth, I definitely lasered in on Boaz as the Jesus-type figure in this story. Um, I think a lot of people kind of err to that, rightly so, because he definitely is a Jesus type in this story. Um, but I think especially as women, um, I think we are kind of urged to see Boaz as the Jesus type. And then we are Ruth, who kind of like are hidden under his cloak of redemption. And then it kind of stops there. Um, but what I love about the Bible is every time you read it, something else kind of churns up um, and just kind of gives you a different way to see the love of God for his children. Um, and I definitely saw that in Ruth this time. Um, whereas before I've kind of been told, like, you know, we as women, we, we, we should be like Ruth and we should kind of draw near to our Boaz. Um, but when you look at this story, we have definitely a very Christ typology happening with the story of Ruth, um, especially when uh, Naomi is kind of urging her to leave and she's clinging on to her. And, she, you know, Davis already read it, but, you know, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Um, she even says, May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Um, and honestly, like her saying that kind of sounds super familiar to me um, from God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 15, when you have that super weird story of God having Abraham cut a bunch of animals in half, <laughs> and then the floating burning pot kind of floats through them. And that's where Abraham receives this promise of, you know, descendants as many as the stars, um, and this promised land of Canaan. Um, and the promise there. It, it's kind of it's like an old custom that used to happen between kings of other nations. And what would happen is you would cut these animals in half and then the king who was doing the promise would promise would walk between them and basically saying, like, I promise to do this thing. And if I don't, I am going to end up like these animals. And so it's very much that, like, I promise to be with you no matter what. And if not, let the curse kind of be brought on to me. Um, and just like the the promise to Abraham, this is just as radical with this Ruth character who's kind of typifying Christ saying, let it be the curse fall on me if I part from you. Um, and even saying like, where you die, I will die. Like what, what else has happened except for that with Jesus coming to earth, descending to earth and dying in our place so that we may live with him. 
Um, and I think, you know, as a Christian, but especially as a woman, like what a better story that is from not just like be like Ruth and cling to God or be, you know, devoted to your family, but like, look how Jesus was like Ruth and how he clung to us. Um, and even if you look into Naomi and how she kind of was this epitome of bitterness, um, she even renames herself Mara, and which means bitter, um, who really has been entrenched in death this for this period of her life. And now you have this Christ-type figure clinging to her. Um, and bitterness, even of itself, comes up again and again in the Bible, mostly um, with different types of law um, impacting the people of God. So you see it with the Israelites in Egypt when the work was making them bitter, and then Esau and his lives making Isaac and Rebekah bitter. Um, and so Jesus is drawing near to us who are kind of entrenched in this law-like bitterness um, and saying, I'm here for the ride. I'm I'm here for all of it. Um, and then, yeah, he, he dies in our place. And, and that's just such a better promise um, than just be like Ruth to me. Mm. Yeah, I love the, the layers on this. I, uh, there, I think there's a lot we could even zoom in on Naomi in addition to the bitterness and including the way that she goes out with much from Bethlehem and comes back with bitterness and emptiness and people are talking about that and they're like, wow, she must have really done something wrong to deserve this from God. Uh, not knowing that God is using this to tell uh, his story and ultimately to bring about King David uh, through what's going to take place here, which is really moving. Um, I think two of the, I, I can't get enough of, of what happens when um, you see twos in stories. Um, the, the difference between the two covenants is something that the New Testament authors are seemingly always on the hunt for. Like when the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 is like, hey, Hagar and Sarah, that, that's actually, those are real people in history, but they're, they existed to tell a story greater than themselves, that of two covenants. And in fact, these women are to be interpreted allegorically as two covenants. Um, and I think you could do that here with Orpah and Ruth to say that Orpah, I mean, it just makes sense that she would be told by Ruth I, yeah, I got nothing or be told by Naomi, excuse me. Uh, I got nothing else for you, but you have a lot of potential for your future. And she's like, you know what? That logically adds up. And so I'm peacing out and uh, have a good life. Whereas Ruth just has this new covenant feel to her in the way that she says, I ain't going anywhere. I'm sticking with you. Like you were saying, Laura, I'm just where you go, I'll go. And uh, I just, the, the gospel in so many words is, but Ruth clung to her, <laughs> even though she didn't need to, even though Naomi didn't deserve it. And I just think that the picture there, especially that Naomi is experiencing at the end of her rope, the law looks like Orpah. And it was just like, well, you failed, peace out. Whereas the gospel says, I, I'm clinging to you and I'm going to bring about a type of healing in the situation that you can't engineer for yourself, which is good news. Preach. Well, let's turn to Psalm 40. Uh, this is a psalm with lots of layers. It's, uh, let's see, 17 or so verses. And it um, is kind of on the heels of, of three or four psalms that have really been dealing with waiting on God. Um, and that's what David even says. Verse, the first verse is, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. 
Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Uh, before I, we look any further into the psalm, um, you, you guys got any commentary on these first three verses? I, I think it's it's notable that the trouble is not given um, specific language. Like this was my actual problem, but it's something that I think applies to anyone and everyone and probably has some things to say about, about Christ. So curious to hear your guys' thoughts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a lot of resurrection imagery happening right in the beginning. Um, and I feel like it's just kind of setting it up for the rest of the psalm and for the rest of the story, really. Um, you know, we can look at these first three vi- verses and read it about us, right? This is kind of that dual nature of reading the Bible. We can read it, and this is our story um, when we're saved by Christ. He he draws us up from the pit of, pit of destruction. Um, he sets our feet upon the rock, which is him. Uh, we see that imagery everywhere in the Bible. Um, and he puts a new so- song in our mouth, which is our song of praise to him. Um, but I think it's so important to remember that we only get to sing this song of resurrection because Jesus sang it first and ultimately Jesus sang it better. <laughs> um, I mean, you see him in the pit of destruction, you know, crying out from the cross and then he's brought out of that tomb and then a new song is put in his mouth. And I think love that imagery because I feel like it pulls us from Sinai where God talking was so scary and full of death um, and just, you know, fear and, and not something that the people were yearning for. They were actually like, please stop. Um, And now he has this new song in his mouth. And I think it's so important that we kind of hold on to that new part um, and just see how, amazing that is. I mean, in Zephaniah, it says that he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And just the idea of transitioning from Sinai to this God who sings and exalts in joy over us, um, I think is just so wonderful. Um, and I think it's important to see how we get there. Um, And I think it, it, you know, it's talking about doing this new song. And I think it's that whole story in the Bible where we have this idea of a new thing coming. You see it a lot in Isaiah. Um, Behold, I'm doing a a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do not perceive it. Um, And then you see it in Hebrews as well. Even he talks a lot about how the old things pass away and the new things come forward and, and how the old is becoming obsolete and it's ready to vanish away. And I think that's just here in the psalm, it's kind of setting us up. And then what is that, right? What is this new thing? Um, And that's Jesus. And that's the new covenant. And I think just remembering to see kind of the dichotomy of the two covenants, this law covenant, and then it's grace, Jesus covenant is really important. Yeah, what's really helpful too, along those lines, Laura, is that um, Hebrews 10 actually quotes this psalm in that exact way, which is, you know, we don't always get this, right? Like when we look for two covenants and Davis, you were talking about allegory before, you know, there's explicit and more explicit, more implicit versions of that. And sometimes the Bible is, you know, a bit more helpful because it's saying, well, this is one of those places and, and it gives us these big signal flares for it. And sometimes it doesn't. Well, Hebrews 10, actually, it tells us how to read Psalm 40, uh, at least part of it. 
And just to read from part of it then from Hebrews 10, this is verses five to seven. So quoting verses six to eight in Psalm 40, it says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, for I've come to do your will. And I think this is kind of the big piece in Hebrews. He says, he sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will or by the will of Christ, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of of the body of Jesus. So, so profound. It's just like the way he looks at the, the first covenant, so in verses, I think it was like six or seven or so in Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. He looks at that and says, basically, it's a hint of how one, a day is coming soon when God is going to do away with the law. And he's not really desiring that. It's not something he ultimately planned to endure or be ultimate or to last, but something that people wanted. They thought they could self-deify and self-justify and be gods on their own, listening to the serpent's lie in Genesis 3. Uh, But God gave it for a time in a merciful, gracious way to say, when you find out this isn't doing it for you, and when it causes further problems, not absolves your problems, I'll be there with a second option, a second covenant, and it's just me. It's just my love. And that second covenant is, then I said, here I am. So David's kind of words initially, but ultimately it's Christ's words in David saying, this is what's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. And Christ's obedience is when he said, I will do the will of my father by going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world in love for my enemies to make them my friends. And that's the second covenant. So Again, not something we might naturally see in a, in the middle of some random psalm in the Old Testament. We might, might not draw a line right between those two things like Hebrews does, but this is a really helpful, um, almost teaching element too, for, for us to be on the lookout for these types of dualities, even embedded in Davidic psalms like this in the Old Testament, that God was always planning for a second, better, non-Sinai-like covenant, like you were saying, Laura, a non-Sinai, non-binding not about our obedience covenant, but about the obedience of a second David. Uh, and that's where I think a lot of times Christians, we we talk so much about our obedience uh, on this side of the cross, and we, we can make that too quickly into a golden calf and too quickly into the main part of like the gospel. Um, but it's just not. And I think Hebrews 10, Psalm 40, get at that. It's much more about the obedience of Christ on our behalf and us living out of that, freely out of that, his obedience, which will always be perfect. It'll never fail, never be put an asterisk, asterisk next to, it'll always be sufficient. And and that's not Sinai, right? It's not, that, that's not the deal Sinai makes um, with with uh, humanity. Uh, but the, the the deal of the gospel, so to speak, is that Christ will do everything uh, for us. And that's, again, the the big message of Psalm 40. Yeah, just two quick things to add. The first is on uh, the verses you read for us, Chris, and that is, I, I do think that there is a kind of a spectrum when it comes to interpretation and, and how do you get clarity out of the Old Testament? Because admittedly, it's a really hard document to read. 
Um, and if there was a spectrum that on one side, you'd kind of look more like what we're doing with Red Tree, which is to say you you can't over Jesusify the Old Testament. I actually got asked that question while teaching a class once. Can you can you overdo this? Um, and I think based on uh, well, the two places that jumped to my mind off the cuff would be John 5 and Luke 24. Luke 24, of course, is um, where the, the two guys are walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus says, let me give you a little Bible lesson. Uh, it all means me. Um, and then John 5 is where Jesus actually straight up says, if, if you would have taken Moses seriously, you would have seen that he was writing about me. Um, and so I, th- I think we can go, yeah, I don't think you can overdo it because Jesus himself is going, this is how sh- actually how you read these things. Uh, but if, if we're on that, you know, trying to push the pendulum or the spectrum to, to more to that side, uh, there is still some people that would say, well, no, just the, the times where the New Testament actually says this is about Jesus, that's when you go, OK, well, we can say that's for sure definitively about Jesus, like Galatians 4, like we talked about earlier. Uh, but either way, when you're looking at a psalm like this, you have to, like everyone, every commentator I've read on this has to go, OK, yeah, this he's he's talking about Jesus here because he's using this language of the scroll and he's saying, here I am. I've come to do what is written about me in this scroll. Right. And and that's if it's if it's you, this is really bad news. Like, friends, it's it's terrible news. Right. Like, I got to do all the things that uh, have been promised about this Messiah. It's, you're not. You're, this is you're not the main character of the story. Instead, this is about the lamb who was slain. In fact, Revelation five says as much that the scroll can actually be read. It can be undone. It can be unsealed because it's about this lamb that was slain, bringing about the very will of God, which we'll actually get into here in mm-hmm. Ephesians in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is just a little bit more practical, and that's uh, I just want to read to you verses twelve and. Oh, just verse 12. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Uh, So again, this is King David writing and he did have enemies and armies that were trying to take his life. uh, And that was troublesome, right? That's a miry pit. That's something that he needs help and deliverance from. But uh, continually, David's drawing back to the same verb, which is to wait, to wait, to wait, to wait, and to cry out to God and ask for God to be the one that moves. Uh, And in the midst of these enemies surrounding him, he attaches his problems to his own sins, which are more numerous than the hairs on his head. And where this psalm begins and where the psalm ends is pretty much the same place of saying, look it, it is God who delivers and, and returns joy into my, into my heart, which then proceeds, uh, or which then flows out of my mouth. And it's all a joy of praise to God because of what he has done. Uh, with New Testament eyes, we'd say if the troubles and the sins that we have are more numerous than the hairs on our head, uh, God's grace is greater than the hairs on your head or greater than the sins that you and I are prone to commit. Romans 5 says as much. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And isn't that good news as we think of the things that are ultimately after us, the definitive problems that we have uh, based on our sins and constant uh, bent to run away from, from God. Uh, well, let's turn to Ephesians 1 real quick. I'll, I'll just read for us these three verses, uh, Ephesians 7, uh, 1, 7 through 10. It says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us 
with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What do you guys got for Ephesians 1? Well, I've always loved the word lavished in this uh, passage. It's... um. It's just such a great word. I mean, in English, it's a great word, but it, it's in theology, it's it's an even better word. It it kind of conveys the idea of um, an overflowing cup, which I think, you know, I, th- I think some of the old hymns have that imagery and uh, maybe scripture too, this kind of overflowing cup. Like it's um, like he's almost giving too much grace. It's almost uh, it's almost like, you know, sometimes when we're confronted with grace and salvation, we we tend to say, oh, that that's good. That's good, God. That, that's enough. That's enough. Um, not in a bad way, like we don't want more. Just like, oh, the cup's going to overflow. But God just keeps pouring, keeps pouring and pouring and pouring. And I think that's, that's really important for us. And I think Paul, you know, um, wants that for his churches. He, you know, it, we can't graduate from the gospel. Like we, we're going to say, no, that's enough gospel. And we can move on to something else now. But God says, I want to keep giving and giving and giving rather than give just enough, you know? Um, and I think that's the way that, you know, we've been talking about the voice of the law a lot today from different angles. And that maybe is where it comes up here too, in a contrasting way is the voice of the law is almost kind of karmic in a way. It's almost like contractual, like, you know, you put in a quarter in the vending machine and out pops a candy bar. You do this and then you get this. You abstain from this and then this blessing comes uh, or you do this sin and, and this this particular curse. Well, it's very it's very like contractual and manufactured, but the gospel is not like that. It's it's um, first of all, not a contract. It's a gift. Uh, and it, but it comes completely one way to us and in an overabundance kind of way. So well, it's, it, it doesn't just match any kind of obedience that we give to earn it. It comes in spite of our disobedience and in spite of our sin and in an overflowing kind of way all over the table, you know, um, makes a good, glorious gospel mess all over the table that we can just kind of revel in and, and not worry about ever, um, you know, getting over with, getting through you know, as if it's going to end. And so I think, so I, th- I think lavish and a tying lavish to the redemption of Christ's blood in Christ's blood and the forgiveness of sins is so rich and something that there's a reason why I think he starts his letters this way, you know, because it's the, it's the most important word of the rest of his words that he's going to have for the church as, as important as they are. This, this is more important. And I think everything needs to be read in light of that. Yeah, for sure. And I, I love even just keep, you know, reading right past where you were sitting, Chris. I mean, these, this grace, which he did, he lavished upon us. Um, and it's through that he's made known to us the mystery of his will. Um, I think it's very easy for us. And by us, I mean me, um, to get really tied up with the mysteries of God and kind of make them about me (laughs) and my life and my choices. Um, you know, is the mystery of God, I I have to, you know, pick the right job, like which job is going to bring me more grace or which job is going to bring me more curses down the line? Uh, which job am I going to serve God better? Which job am I, or, you know, which marriage, you know, which, I mean, you could just branch it out into everything. Um, 
But I think just because of the context of this passage and what you were talking about, Chris, this this mystery of his will that his grace is kind of unveiling, I think it's already unveiled to us. I think this is the, the, his grace is the cross. And I think we the mystery has been solved um, in this way. Um, I kind of think back to like what you were talking about, Davis, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which it cracks me up that that is at the end of Luke because... I feel like we've been in Luke for every but what about passage for, for this entire season. And so I love that at the end of Luke, he's like, here, I'm going to explain it all to you. <laughs> um, and we're still trying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that is I think this this mystery has been shown to us through the cross and through the word now, which, uh, you know, I know I've said again and again and again, like this whole Bible is about Jesus and the cross and what it's done for us and what he's done for us. Um, and in that way, this mystery has been unveiled through the grace of the cross. Um, and I, I think that's a better picture than trying to like navigate the, the, ifs and ors or which way or which job, um, because I, I think it just allows us to live in the freedom of that grace and the freedom of the cross and the freedom of him coming in in a Ruth-like way and clinging us regardless of where we go. And to, to be clear, the, the mystery, I mean, it's just in, it's a sentence, right? In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Like this is this is the mystery of his will uh, that he has made now known. It's available to us. Uh, the, the idea of a mystery is something that makes me think of uh, Interstellar, which I'm just surprised by the number of people who haven't seen this movie. It's top 10. It's so good. Uh, yeah, you got Hans Zimmer in there, Christopher Nolan at his best, little Matthew McConaughey. Matthew Come McConaughey. On. What? Get in there. Get in there, McConaughey. So good. Uh, but there's this scene, they're out in space and they're near a black hole. And because of their proximity to this black hole, it really starts to warp how they experience time. And two of the three astronauts go down to this planet and experience an hour of time. And in that hour, because of the proximity of the other astronaut to the black hole, he experiences 27 years, okay? And so when these other two astronauts have just been gone for an hour in, in their timeline, return to this other guy who's experienced 27 years. They open the door and he's aged 27 years, right? And, and, and they look at him and they're astonished. And the guy's words are, for the last 27 years, man, I do hope it's 27 years. I've said 27 now a number of times. I could be <laughs> wrong. Really it's committed. a lot. Of, it's You're like committed. nearly three decades. That's what we know. <laughs> uh, for the last 27 years, I have done nothing but study this black hole. And I haven't even scratched the surface of all of its mysteries. Like it's still so hidden to me. And, and I think that's a, it's a helpful illustration for what's taking place here in that the mystery, it's, it has been made known. Like the, the mystery is the gospel that you have been forgiven by God himself, by him taking on your sin and rising again from the dead after he took your place in death. Uh, that's a mystery that's been made known and it's been hidden since the beginning of the world, even before Adam and Eve died or even took the fruit and spiritually died in their separation from God. God had an idea that he was going to ultimately take the second Adam out uh, on a cross so that we would be uh, rescued. This has always been his plan. 
and the the profoundness of it. In fact, that's a word that uh, Paul uses later in Ephesians to describe what this mystery is, that it's a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and his relationship to the church, uh, meaning that you can spend the rest of your days double-clicking on this mystery and find something new in it. A simple way to do that is just to ask, how does the gospel, how does the, the mystery now made known come underneath a passage in the Bible and make it good news? Or how does that same mystery come underneath a hard thing happening in my life and make me go, I think I can wait on God. I think I can trust him. Or, or any life circumstance that I'm in. The the mystery has been revealed. I love, uh, Laura, your description there of like how uh, self-centered I get when I think of the mystery of God. And I think, okay, God, what, what do you want me to do here? Give me a sign. The reality is he's given us the best sign, the clearest sign, the sign that says, hey, you can make a decision today and I'll be with you if you go left or if you go right, if you wear brown socks or black socks. I don't know who wears brown socks. That'd be a weird color of socks to wear. <laughs> it's usually black or white. I think that's what most people wear. Uh, but maybe we'll take a poll. Go ahead and comment on the, the link below. Your color maybe it's of uh, next year's color. Maybe it's next year's color <laughs> brown, or something. Brown socks are in. You hear, it's in the front end of a trend here or something. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> well, with mysteries being revealed in mind, let's go to another harder passage in Luke. So our but what about section is going to be Luke 17 today, the first 10 verses. I think we'll tackle more verses in weeks to come. Uh, but here in these passages, what we want to look at is the reason I think we we want to call this a but what about section is because it just sounds so go and do this forward. Uh, so works heavy. Um, doing over believing is kind of the way it can often be read. And then uh, what happens when that is the case is that we read it and we're like, okay, I should do a bunch of stuff. And then we usually forget about it or we feel guilty that we haven't done enough. Uh, because again, we're just spending time looking at ourselves um, and thinking the mystery of God belongs to us and what we do. But really, you can kind of break uh, down this section with, well, the language of my own uh, NIV is sin, faith, duty. So kind of three sections here in the first 10 verses. Uh, and the first charge is kind of don't be bad. Don't cause somebody to stumble. The second one has to do with faith, where the disciples are going to respond and say, well, give us more faith. And Jesus is going to respond to that. And then the third section is that of duty or servitude. So maybe we just take them in stride. Laura, why don't you tell us about don't be bad? Well, Davis, just don't be bad. <laughs> That's that easy. Chris, is there more to say? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah, no, those first four uh, verses are really interesting because it really is. It's like, don't make anybody else mess up and also don't mess up. And if somebody else messes up, forgive them unconditionally. There you go. And if you don't do that, uh, we're going to tie a millstone around your neck and throw you into the ocean. Yay. So uplifting. I feel like I read this and then I write it on my bathroom mirror. um, And it just makes me feel really good every morning. (laughs) When I read it. Life verse. <laughs> Life <Mantra>. verse. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting. I, I think this is kind of like what I love about studying the Bible is kind of having these words pop out at me and finding them somewhere else in the text. Um, and that's what happened when I read Millstone. I was like, I know I've seen that before. Um, dug a little bit, and we actually see it kind of going forward all the way in Revelation um, 18. And so it's near the end of Revelation, and you actually have this really cool picture of an angel throwing a millstone into the sea, which sounds 
really similar to what we just read here, except there's one big difference, which there's not anybody attached to the millstone. Um, and I think that's really important <laughs> um, because here you have like, if you mess up, this really heavy thing is going to be tied to you um, and you're going to drown because there's no way that you'd be able to withstand the water uh, with this tied on you. And then in Revelation, we have just this heavy thing being tossed into the water with nobody strung to it. Um, and I think, you know, we have to think about what happened in between that made the difference, right? And what happened in between was the cross. Um, in Luke right here, the cross hasn't happened yet. Um, and I think the cross, what that did was take this millstone, uh, which I am going to argue it could be the law, um, off of our back. Because here, you know, like you were saying, Davis, like this is all about being good. And this is what's going to drown us in the waters of judgment. Um, because no one can do this. I can't do this. I mean, Davis, maybe you can do this. I feel like I of can. the three Confirmed. of us, it's probably you. You're welcome. <laughs> do better. Do more. Uh, okay. Oh, all right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is just so uplifting, guys. I feel like this is good. Um, but yeah, no one can do this. Um, hmm. But what we can all do is praise God while that millstone gets rocketed into the sea by an angel. Um and just love that we aren't attached to it because mm. the law is going to mm. go away. The law has been tossed into the sea um, and we have been spared from that, even though verses one through four aren't happening in our hearts every day, all the time. Um, I just, I, I, I love being able to kind of like take these pictures and kind of unpack them so we can kind of get a better well-rounded uh, image of what's going on in the text. So good. And, and the response then that the, again, the, uh, the disciples have as they hear Jesus say these things is increase our faith, right? Cause mm. especially the last piece of, um, you must forgive people when they wrong you. Uh, this is a Christian ethic and it is something that's, we celebrate and it's really good. I mean, it's the heartbeat of the faith is that we have been forgiven, but so often it's that piece is missed that when we hear, go and forgive people. We just hear it as like, oh, I got to do this. And then when something really bad actually happens to you, especially by somebody you love, if that's your first knee-jerk reaction is just, I need to forgive them. You're probably not using the weapons of the faith that in involve the mystery that has been made known to us that Ephesians 1 just unpacked for us, right? And that's that's revealed here in the disciples' response of like, okay, give me more faith because I can't I can't do this. And so I need I need more faith. And Jesus' response is masterful. He goes, that's that's actually not even the thing you need. And, and in fact, he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. So it actually isn't even about the, the quantity of your faith that you're in need of. Mm -hmm. It's the object of your faith. You need to stop looking at yourself in the midst of these things and put that faith on me. Because even if you have the slightest, the smallest bit of faith in me and not yourself, this will make all the difference in being able to do the good that God is interested in, uh, but not over and against what he's done for you. Yeah, and, the, and lastly, the but what about element in verses 7 to 10 is another one of Jesus' shorter parables that kind of um, 
you know, I think, I think Laura used a phrase in a previous podcast, like get stuck in your teeth. I, I liked that imagery <laughs> that you used. It just kind of seems to sometimes uh, some of these things, but it's just a short parable about a servant coming in from working in the field. And then there's this question, you know, who's going to say to the servant, uh, just sit down and relax now. Don't you instead say to your servant, uh, cook me a meal uh, and finish your job, basically uh, being a servant before you uh, call it a day. And then picking up in verse nine, uh, Jesus says, well, he thank the servant because of what uh, he was told to do. So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And so it, I think Davis, you're alluding to this, the, 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 but what about element here is it seems like if we're going to totally overlay this over the Christian life, which actually I think is somewhat problematic, I'll come back to that. But if we are to do that, it makes it sound like, um, it first kind of sounds kind of gospelless, but it it amplifies our doing. It amplifies us being a servant of God, and it feels kind of cold as well. Like you know, God doesn't want us to rest where we know He does. Like in Matthew eleven, Jesus says, "I want you to rest. Come to me, and you'll find rest for your souls." My I, my yoke is not heavy, and this feels like a, a heavy yoked parable. So that's where these kind of tensions could come up a lot in in Scripture. But I think. Um, so my, my response to that would be, I, I don't think the main point of that has to do with us and our identity as much as the very end. Uh, when Jesus says, we should say we are unworthy uh, servants, we've only done our duty. And then before that, um, will he thank the servant? You know, I, I think that the point is our relationship with God is not give and take, you know, uh, like it is again in that in that vending machine kind of way we talked about before. Um God doesn't thank us because we aren't working for him. Uh, God never thanks because he doesn't need anything. He just wants to give of himself. And I think that's the bigger point here is to see we're not in that kind of relationship with God, that kind of servant relationship with him. Um, there's no thanking. There's just um, relating and, and, and being with him, living out of his grace and mercy. And so the point remains, we are unworthy servants because we haven't done any good to deserve the label of worthy. So we can say we're unworthy, but still have a place in his home. We can say we're unworthy, but still be called ones who are with him, you know? And, um, and so then I think like to go circle back to what I was kind of starting with, I think that one of the things we have to be careful with, with these types of passages is that they're kind of Old Testament scripture in some regards still in the sense that they're looking ahead. Like this portion of the gospels is not yet full blown New Testament. And when you do treat it that way, when you do treat these as though they are full blown, this is what it means to live as a Christian. This is perfectly depicting the state of the Christian life. Then you're more inclined to look at these in kind of that heavy way, you know, and, and apply it moralistically. And it could even shape your view of God in a wrong kind of cold um, give and take, you know, cooperative manner when it comes to salvation and sanctification, but that's not the point. Um, the point is maybe in part, in addition to what I said before, another twist of that would be just to say, maybe we haven't done this perfectly. Like maybe there's a law element to this. Maybe Jesus is not just saying this is about you, but this is about me. Like I'm going to be the servant. Like in Mark 10, when he says, I didn't come to serve, but to, uh, or to be served, but I came to serve by giving my life as a ransom for many. And we have to allow, I think, those greater, more clear teachings of Jesus to paint and color these parables, which by definition are foggy. And so Jesus in here then to grant clarity to, to the parable is the ultimate servant. He's the one 
who's not looking for thanks. He's just looking to serve and give of his life. He's not doing this for himself. He's serving, preparing a meal, working hard for us in the field so that um, we can be blessed, so that we can be brought in and consoled. And again, to have that home in, in the house of God. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided by Dan Zeller and website support by Nolan Bauer. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, do consider dropping us a rating wherever you get your podcast to join us in giving away the always better news of God's grace. Thanks again for being with us. On Christ the Son.